Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we turn music book authors loose. Today we dive into New Barbarians, Outlaws, Gunslingers, and Guitars with author Rob Chapman. If you're a fan of the Stones or the Faces or just good old rock and roll, you should read this book. Welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is such a cool book about kind of an unknown band, except for Stones fans who know about it. But I think there's a bit of a misconception, perhaps, that it was Keith's group, not Ron's. Yeah, I mean, it was to simplify it. Ronnie had just put out in April of 79 a record called Give Me Some Neck because he had the short window. And really, he assembled some quality players, as we know, to basically do what every record company wishes you would do, which is tour behind a record. So he put that band together, as we know him as New Barbarians. It was always Ronnie's band, and Keith was just paid as a hired gun, which is, you know funny in its own right but you know really that's all it came down to is keith was one of the other guys in the band but i think to dive into part two of that phase of this uh, why keith has has a lot to do with it is he got arrested in 77 uh, coming into canada with his then common law wife anita as they were coming in to mix what became the Stones' live album, Love You Live. He, at that time in 77, was heavily into junk, heroin. So was Anita. And so when they came in, just because, you know, those people that get into that world become, what ends up doing them in is they become careless, I guess is the word, and just, you know, it's just a very lazy kind of way of life. Well, Keith got caught with a lot of uh, heroin and quite a bit of cocaine as well, and the Canadian authorities were out to get him, so to speak, um, and he had enough on him that, you know, could be facing a, um, you know, a felony as opposed to, oh, he just had a little on him, we're just going to fine him, but this was big time. Because he he ended up surviving for a year and a half while the Stones were doing their thing from April of 79, or excuse me, 77 till the fall of it took 20 months for them to, for Keith to go to trial after he got arrested. And he was ordered to pay, I mean, he was, he got off, but he had to pay a huge fine. And then the judge ordered him to do two free concerts for, um, as the Stones. And the charity was chosen, uh, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. So they did two shows in Oshawa, which is a small town outside of Toronto. And all this was happening concurrently with Ronnie Wood assembling the band for that, what I mentioned, that Gimme Some Neck tour. So I guess since they're already up there, they figured, you know, why not kick off Ronnie's tour with the New Barbarians in, you know, Canada along with the Stones. So you basically had Keith wouldn't have got arrested. Uh, You know, it could have went a whole nother way. If he would have got put away, we'd be even talking about the Stones and certainly even what would Ronnie have been doing. So it's this whole scenario changed. People don't, I mean, Stones fans know, but I thought the book was crucial and had to be told because this could have went a whole nother way and it certainly could have put Keith in a different you know obviously position in life as well as you know this was everybody's livelihood from the band down to a lot of people you get that big of a band there's a lot of people that count on that machine to keep going and if that machine would have been shut down that wouldn't have been you know it would have been bad for everybody so I guess the fact that Keith you know, was able to go out, play these two shows, and then Ronnie did two shows. Keith kind of had a lot to do with how the Barbarians kicked off the tour in the same place the Stones did those two free shows. 
right? You said in your book that it had everything and nothing to do with the new barbarians, Keith's drug bust. So I, I guess what you just explained is that in a nutshell, that Keith really, really needed this band and, and maybe more importantly, this tour because of everything that was going on in his life. Yeah, he, I mean, there was a couple, you know, there was, uh, the Stones usually did, they toured every three years back then. When you think about that, it's pretty amazing that how they did things back then. They, you know, they would tour 69 and 70, 70 would be Europe, 72, 73, 73 would be Europe, 75, 76. Well, when it came time to tour for the Some Girls record, which would have been the domestic tour was 78, summer 78, they normally would have went out and did European dates in 79. They chose way before the barbarians were even a, you know, a glimmer. Mick decided that, you know, they weren't going to tour, which broke precedence for them. And, you know, Mick was going through his own problems. Then he had uh, Bianca and him or his first wife were getting divorced. That was an ugly, you know, uh, court case. And the band was kind of, you know, especially Keith was kind of, you know, messed up. So I think they just made a decision not to go out on the road in 79. Well, there's that old saying, you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop. I mean, Keith was wrestling with numerous things. He was trying to get away from his then common-law wife, Anita Pallenberg, who, you know, it was together they were, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, chaos. And he no was trying to get break free of that. And he was also, he needed to keep busy big time because that's when he gets in trouble is, like a lot of those guys, artistic people, if they stay busy, they're they're good. But as soon as they have all this time on their hands, trouble happens, and that's why, the barbarians were in a weird, weird way. I mean, him and Ronnie were his closest brothers back then. Kind of came along and gave him, you know, two months of that summer to kind of stay focused on something which he loved, which was music. You're right about the brotherhood that they have. And, and you know, most people still attribute that today. And I wonder if this wasn't a huge initial part of that growth. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, all that was, to me as a fan, and I think, you know, I'd have tons of people chime in, that period from really when Ronnie joined in 75, but more importantly from, you know, you take 75, 76, they toured, and then you got 77 when the Keith bust happened, and they started recording Some Girls, and then they did the Some Girls tour in 78, they did the Barbarians in 79, they did the 81 tour. That's a very busy and fruitful period for the band, and it was, they took it to another level. I mean, it was, Ronnie was finally really gelling on the Some Girls record. He was, him and Keith were doing, I think, what they call that ancient art of weaving is what it's been coined, where you can't tell who's playing what you know, rhythm, here's the solo, rhythm, you know, it's like they're weaving in and out of these songs, and I think there's nothing more evident in that case than Beast of Bird, and if you listen to Beast of Bird, it's just one of the best songs ever for me, as far as the guitar playing. No doubt. And um, so Ronnie and Keith were really gelling and really just wanted to keep playing and see how far they could take it, so the Barbarians in that summer of 79 was really an extension of what they were, you know, having gelled through the Some Girls tour of 78. You know, I do have to say, in my opinion, that first Wood album, Black and Blue, is just a vastly underrated record in their canon. 
Oh, I, I mean, thoroughly agree. I mean, for, you know, obviously there were a lot of players shuffling in and out of that because they were trying to fill that hole of Ronnie. I mean, he was already considered a stone by then, but you hit it on the head for me. I mean, I don't know why. I guess, be, I mean, if you look at the critics back then, if it was Zeppelin or the Stones, everybody was, you know, yet Frampton Comes Alive was coming. I mean, rock was getting a lot of documentaries touch on it. It was becoming corporate rock, as they call it, you know, the Eagles, whatever. And I think everybody, it's so funny that critics can be really harsh with if it's Thriller or if it's Rumors or, you know, you kind of climb the mountain and go through all your whatever and you hit the top and you sell, you know, a zillion records. And then, you know, they just, it's like they slag you off as being, like oh they sold you know sold out or they they got too commercial for me as opposed to I look at it as maybe they creatively just finally hit their stride right right and you know I think I think people realize how hard it is to write great songs that you know so I mean a lot of things could be said for black and blue but I never understood why it was just kind of I think everybody just kept wanting to hear another exile which probably got old for the band. So this is definitely Ron's band, and he mentions in his autobiography, and you quote that, that he booked the whole tour, he paid for it, I think he designed some of the set stage and the lighting, and he wanted to go around in style. So he handpicks the musicians, which is a, a truly stellar and diverse crew. Can you go through their pedigree? Sure. You know, when, when he, I mean, the, the number of, the amount of guitar players that raised their hand for this, back to Page to Neil Young, I mean, it was, for whatever reason, some of them had to, you know, drop out. But there was a lot of people that Ronnie Wood still does, knows everybody, and everybody likes Ronnie Wood. So, I mean, it was like, and he's also a talented guy, and he had came out of the faces. So there was no shortage of people that wanted to play in this band. And so once he finally realized that Keith was going to be the guy, and Keith only, then he moved on to other things. And so if you take, there's two obvious choices, I guess, not obvious, but I think they're obvious. You got Bobby Keys on sax, who obviously was almost like another stone. He was, you know, mixed best man at his wedding in 71, same birthday as Keith. I mean, he was, you know, as entrenched in that band as anybody. So for him to play sax with Ronnie is not a stretch, so that made sense. And then you have on keyboards, you had Ian McLagan, who obviously was with Ronnie in the faces. Another one of those brotherhood things. He had just came off the Some Girls tour with the Stones. He played on the song The Single Miss You, very entrenched in the Stones. Another one of those obvious choices out of the two, you know, Bobby and Mac. And then you start getting into the, you know, the bottom, and you got Keith calls him the engine room. You got on drums, Zigaboo, Joseph Modeliste, who was in a band that, you know, anybody that kind of knows a little bit about music knows how important the band the meters were as far as funk and New Orleans. Orleans sound and you know he was a drummer in the meters and you know everybody from Paul McCartney to more importantly Charlie Watts loved you know Zigaboo and Charlie actually was going to do the Barbarians tour but he wanted to do another project Rocket 88 so he kind of bowed out but he did and Charlie was that's one thing about Charlie Watts and any of the Stones he's they do it I mean Charlie's the one that they all look up to and so as soon as Charlie said, you know, you should get, you know, Zig, you know, Ronnie didn't even have to think about it anymore. And, you know, Zig was kind of floundering around in the 70s after the meters broke up, bad management, you know, money trouble. So this came at the right time for him and fit perfectly with the bass player, which is probably a lot of people are going to say a funky choice. You know, so you got Stanley Clark. That's a weird one. 
it is a weird one. And what's but it, but what's funny when I I spend a lot of hours talking to Stanley, and he said the funny thing about it is is that he always admired Ronnie Wood when he played with Jeff Beck, which is really funny. He goes, I always thought Ronnie's playing with Jeff Beck was off the charts. He said so when he thought of getting Stanley to you know compliment Zigaboo, and when he got a hold of him. They caught up a little bit, and the only thing he asked Stanley was for a resume was, can you play Chuck Berry? And Stanley told me he kind of giggled, and he goes, yeah, I can play Chuck Berry. That's all Ronnie needed to hear. And the the funny thing about Stanley is when he finally showed up to rehearsals in Culver City, you know, Ronnie being the jovial, like, party boy, comes around the corner with his fender on, and Stanley looks at him, and he goes, the hell you got that thing on for? And he goes, Ronnie had that funny look on his face, like, well, I play guitar in the Barbarians. And he goes, Stanley goes, duh. He goes, that's right, you play guitar in the Stones. He goes, I always think he was a bass player. <laughs> wow. So it was kind of funny that he just didn't even connect that. he, Of course, he knew after, of course, you play guitar in the Stones, but he only saw Ronnie as a bass player. So it was kind of a weird, it is a weird choice, but then again, the two almost were destined to play together. It's you mentioned Chuck Berry, the set list. I'm wondering if Ronnie came up with that. It was probably half solo stuff, half of these you know, crowd-pleasing covers, including Stone's material, and then Keith got a song or two. Was that Ronnie, or was it a group decision? Or how? The set list remained pretty consistent throughout the tour. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I, I think as a, I mean, the one thing about it was Ronnie's band, and there were many times in rehearsals where Keith would say, you know, you got to crack the whip, this is your band. But on the other hand, Keith was always that big brother that could punch him on the arm and say, stop doing, you know, was Ronnie always looked up to Keith and was, was like a little brother to Keith, got picked on like a little brother would get picked on. But I think there was always that, I mean, Keith had only known touring in a big band in the Stones. So I think any tiny corner or turn that they had to make, I think Ronnie was glad to have Keith right there to help him. So I think together they hammered out the set list. And some of those songs, obviously, you know, on the tour and they played most nights, you know, Parma Number 9, Let's Go Steady. These are obviously songs that they fleshed out finally that they just love. They probably listened to the 45s, you know, a zillion times. Finally got to play them live. But then again, Ronnie had four or five, six numbers off Give Me Some Neck that he had to promote. That was the whole point of the tour. And then, of course, they were smart enough to drop in some cool Stone songs in their set list. I think the nugget that was really cool coming from the Stones angle is that the Some Girls record, which they just got done touring summer of 78, there was probably any given night they played, if you look back on any bootlegs or whatever, there was, you know, seven, eight of the ten Some Girls songs were played live, except the one Keith song that he sang on Some Girls, Before They Make Me Run, was never played on the Some Girls tour. So they inserted that song on the New Barbarians tour. So fans were like stoked to hear him do Before They Make Me Run Live. It couldn't have been more conceptually accurate either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he wrote that song obviously down and out in Canada from 77, and then he finally got to play it live. For this tour, Keith was clean or at least heroin free. I mean, he, he looks really good in the photos in the book. He looks healthy for Keith. You know, he's got teeth. Well, exactly. And that's the funny thing is that if you ask some of the, I think Mac had the comment in Ian McClagan's book, you know, when asked, um, you know, well, how long did rehearsals go on? You know, and they most of the comebacks were until we ran out of blow. <laughs> 
I guess the short answer is he was trying. You know, he was wrestling with it still, uh, getting off the junk. But, I mean, this was a, you know, I talked to Henry Diltz, who shot the tour, the photographer, and he said that they were just, he says, the thing I remember about that, he says, I'd been around, you know, messed up bands before and people that liked to party and people liked to drink and whatever they did. But he said, I think the thing that was so incredible about these guys was, you know, they carried on big time and, you know, the party just, you know, never ended. But he says they were all so freaking funny. He said they were like all stand-up comedians and like, you know, the, the jokes that you, you would walk away from a situation because you were laughing so hard. So I think the fact that, you know, they were partying, there's no doubt about that. The thing that was always the undercurrent of that partying was Keith did not want this to come off as a joke and he didn't want to fall on his face because he knew Mick was on the sides, you know, making sure that Keith was always really kind of leery of, he didn't want to let the band down anymore. You know, he knew he was problems with was, you know, it was starting to become, okay, this isn't funny anymore. And the last thing he wanted was to have, you know, fall on his face as a solo artist, so to speak. You know, he, he really was conscientious of holding up his reputation as part of the Stones. Even with that drug bus kind of casting a cloud, it wasn't exactly a no fun tour. There a cast of characters, you mentioned comedians, but like Belushi and some of the Saturday Night Live crew who were partiers themselves, you know, hanging around, right? I mean, there's that, I don't know if it's, I can't remember if it's in the book, but it, I think it is. But, you know, the one time Joe Wood, uh, Ronnie's soon-to-be wife, they had two rehearsal spaces in L.A., the area anyway. They had one in Santa Monica, which was Brother Records, which was the Beach Boys label and studio. And then they had the Culver City soundstage, and they would go back and forth because sometimes in Santa Monica, it just got too crazy with people showing up. They just would keep, you know, going back and forth and not telling people where they are. And there was one night, Joe said that she was up on a ladder with a flashlight acting like a spotlight and you had Chevy Chase on drums. A lot of people don't know that Chevy Chase was kind of the original drummer of Steely Dan before they became Steely Dan. Wow. So you had Chevy Chase on drums, you had Belushi singing, Aykroyd was there playing percussion, you know, these Saturday Night Live guys who were obviously getting big and just as big almost as the band then. She said it was like, you know, the Stones playing with Belushi and they had just kind of done the Blues Brothers record and Keith being, you know, the professional from, you know, the Stones angle would every now and then have to say, you know, you got to get these guys out of here. We love doing this, but we got to hammer out these songs and everything. So it became more of a distraction than anything. But again, on the other hand, these were all their friends. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Stanley Clark in your book says there is, quote, a lot of X-rated stuff going on, the kind of thing you read about in magazines. Not a surprise for the Stones tour, but do you think this surprised Clark? Stanley was quick to point out, I don't know if he's being defensive about it, but he was like, do something for a living music-wise, and you get, let's say you're in the country world. Well, everybody thinks that you, you know, all you listen to as a kid was Hank Williams, Roy Clark, or whatever. And you get in the jazz world, you think, oh, he must just listen to tons of Coltrane. And he said, I was, you know, he goes, I listened to Otis Redding. I listened to Chuck Berry. He goes, I had a lot of people influence what I became. And any musician knows that. It matters what comes out of the speakers, what's in your DNA. But I think Stanley coming from, you know, you were kind of out of that. You went through that blue note, Harlem kind of jazz phase where everybody was lit up from, you know, the old Charlie Parkers and Dizzy Gillespie's and those kind of guys to, you know, you had the 70s with the Chick Koreas and the new period. He said that, you know, there it wasn't as raucous and alpha male kind of thing as rock was at the time. So for him to come to that world and you had, you know, no shortage of girls, you know, I guess they'd be called groupies waiting to do whatever they wanted to do. He never saw that. But he says, I was not nearly the level that these guys were so i think for him it was it was just a whole nother uh, area of music that he was seeing for the first time well it's funny i know he was into health shakes and uh he offered up one to keith and, and that cracked me up in your book i don't know if you can recount that but it was hilarious so the, it all comes back to the guy that was ronnie's manager at the time was a gentleman named jason cooper Keith gets something in his head, supposedly, and he just he's just stubborn that way. And he just did not like Jason Cooper. And, you know, that whole thing with, is Mick going to show up? Is Rod Stewart going to show up? This Jason Cooper kind of would fan those flames a lot. That bugged the hell out of Keith. And so there was one night flying from one show to another. Stanley said he was sitting up in the front of the plane, and Keith was in the back. And Ronnie came up the aisle and said, Stanley, you got to... Keith, I got the gun out, and he's he's pissed off. You got to go talk to him. You're the only one that can. Stanley said to me, he goes, I have no idea why they thought I could calm him down. I, I don't know if they just didn't want to do it. So he said, I went back there, and Keith is sitting there. He's pissed off, you could tell. And he's like, you know, got this little pistol out. He's like, Keith, whatever it is, we'll get through it. It's okay. It's okay. You know, come on, man. He goes, tell you what, Keith, I'm going to make you one of my specialties. I got a hell shake. I'm going to brew up for you. He said, Keith gave me that look, took a big pull off his Marlboro, go ahead, grabbed his whiskey glass and looked at me and just said, Stanley, Stanley, Stanley. <laughs> that is classic. And he just laughed and he goes, he goes, I diffused the situation, but he said over a health shake. Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the, the special guests and the huge names that were bandied about. If you could maybe offer up who those were, and uh, I think Cooper, you mentioned, also was one of the guys who put them out there. And I think some radio stations even did, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's funny about that, 
the whole scenario is so you basically have a band that you know there's a lot of you know Crosby Stills Nash and Young was a super group you know you can go down the line of anybody that's thrown together and you know do a quick tour or whatever it's now called super group so you really have a group like this where you got Stanley's in one arena you got two Rolling Stones in another arena you, you know it's like so obviously you do have a bunch of guys thrown together that appeal to a lot of different fans when they did this tour it had nothing to do with the Stones the name had nothing to do with anything except that it's just what they called themselves. So when they would go to these cities, I think that the promoters, not the band so much as the promoters were worried about, you know, the new barbarians aren't going to sell out hockey arenas. They just, they just didn't, they were worried about that. So I think that was very easy to say barbarians and friends and the friends could be Bobby Keys and Stanley Clark. So the wording was very carefully crafted by the promoters on posters but then again, if you look at that, I mean, the Stones did Saturday Night Live the end of 78. Mick got up on stage with Peter Tosh because they were sporting Peter. For Mick to show up in a couple cities on a, on, in 79 when the Stones aren't on the road and two of his mates are playing, that would not be that big of a stretch. For Rod Stewart to maybe pop up and do one song in New York with you know, Ronnie and Mac, two of his oldest friends, you know, you and I talking about it doesn't seem that big of a stretch. If you talk to the guys, that was never, ever in the card. So when you would get to certain cities, they would be up on stage and you'd hear people yelling out, you know, where's Rod? You know, the names were like, there were so many of them. I mean, Van Morrison, Dylan, you know, just kept going on and on. And they're like, where's Mick? Where's Rod? And they didn't understand what they were talking about, Keith and Ronnie. And then they finally figured it out. And that's why if you listen to some of the Barbarians bootlegs, you'll hear Ronnie introduce the band. And then he'll say, you know, um, this is the band you're going to see. Or he'll say, these are the special guests. And if these aren't special enough. And, right, right. I noticed that on the CD. You know, it's like the only band would want more when you've got, I mean, how much cool cred can you have on the stage? I mean, you're not happy with Stanley and Keith and Ronnie and Bobby Keys. I mean, it's like just kind of funny that they wanted special guests with that lineup. Right, right. This built up to a frenzy. And then when Milwaukee came around, must have got to a fever pitch. And when none of the guests were there and the fans figured it out, you know, it is Milwaukee. Talking to the road guys, I mean, it got really bad at the end. The cops got involved, which sometimes escalate the heat. It just, they, the fans start riding and, you know, throwing chairs. And there's a, if you talk to a couple of the sound guys, they said we were basically shielding the equipment in the middle of the venue from getting broken. And they said it was one guy's name is Ken Graham, who designed the stage. And I remember him thinking about it for me. He goes, you know, what it reminded me of it reminded me of like the villagers in a Frankenstein movie, <laughs> uh, you know, back to the old Universal movies where they got the pitchforks and then they're going down the town. They wanted somebody. And he said these fans were just not letting this go. And it got ugly. We're talking with Rob Chapman, the author of New Barbarians, Outlaws, Gunslingers, and Guitars, probably the most misunderstood supergroup. So the Toronto shows Keith was ordered to do as part of his sentence. He headquarters himself in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin at the Playboy Club, and he flew in and out only for the concert. I don't know if the whole band did that or just Keith, but what was the story there? They were... And actually, it's funny because there was also a studio there, and they did lay down some tracks there, which they were so they were like like any good band. They did have a place to go kind of doodle about when they weren't, you know, sitting around. I think that the reason they it makes a lot of sense logistically now to have a band, you know, work out of Chicago, let's say, and they hit, you know, Minneapolis, they hit Des Moines, they, you know, they have a central base. 
back then, they were still, you got to remember, when Keith went up to do these two shows in April of 79, he had to do two shows, and that was part of his sentence. And then he still had to go on April 23rd, which would have been the day after the what they call the blind date, the two shows. He still had to go to court the next day, check in, go, you know, have everything cross T's, dot the I's that he did, in fact, uphold his end of the bargain. So he wasn't out of the woods until he pulled away in the limo from the courthouse on the 23rd of April. So I think the whole thing was they hadn't been back to Toronto since that horrible 77 bus. And so I think they wanted Canada as little time as possible. They wanted to fly in, do the shows and get right back out. I mean, you could chalk it up to paranoia. But I think it was a smart move on Richard Fernandez. Just let's just get you in, get you out. And it wasn't that far to fly into Lake Geneva. Plus, they had the all the comforts of the Playboy Club made sense. And uh, they just wanted to go in and out. Well, it's funny you mentioned, and it is a strategy that plays out today. A lot of bands do that. It's the superstar bands. They choose a place. And, you know, half the time, they're probably on their private jet popping champagne with the wheels are up and fans are still there at the holding their lighters up. Yeah, and they were, I mean, I remember the, the, that was the, the, not saying they're the first band, but I remember seeing the Stones on the 81 tour, and you would, if you had the right seat, you know, their thing back then was they would do Satisfaction, and then they would play Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner at the very end, they'd shoot the fireworks off, while, while that was all going on, you know, this is before... You know, seeing set lists online and having your friend text, I'm at Boston, I just saw him do blah, blah, blah. This is like you would see the the, the fireworks going on, the, you know, the end of the show. And most concert goers, people would stand there and go, they would be screaming more, 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 you know, and they wanted one more song. And sometimes they did come back out. But the Stones were the first to, why they're doing more, 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 they've got the limos or the bands where the back door is open. And they, like you said, they were getting in, lighting up their cigarettes and heading to the airport. That way they got out and the fans would be let out. You know, finally the lights would come on and it became very systematic. You know, it's always weird to talk about some of the visual content of books on a podcast, but this book is chock full of just fantastic photographs and some really great ephemera. Particularly, there's the original Braille concert program, which is really cool. How did you track down a lot of this stuff? Some of it was easier than others. I had help. Voyager Press had a freelance editor named Michael Dregney, who had some contacts throughout the music world. And he knew some of the right people to ask. And he, you know, had connections in, you know, all walks of life in the music business. And I started with Ronnie for me, and then Ronnie would pass it to the four road guys that he knew were all still around except one. And then as soon as you start talking to one of the road guys, they'd go, oh, did you talk to uh, Ernie at uh, SIR Studios? No, I got here. Let me get his number for you. And it started spiraling like that. It was very organic, which was what I liked about it. You know, you'd go... God, I got this guy's name, and he's got all the. He's. I know. Last time I talked to him, he had a backstage pass because he did the lights. He got a copy of that Braille program. You know, it would go like that, and it would basically be one of those. You just would get finally get a hold of somebody. Most people, there was a few that would, you know, just you know, flat out wanted a, you know, wanted a fee. Here's what I'm going to want you to pay me for this. But there were most people that just were glad to lend a hand and just said, you know, just mention me in the book. How about that? You know, so I had a, a lot of people raise their hand with all kinds of stuff from the Braille program to the some of these images. I mean, somebody had a copy of all memos that CBS had at the time. 
and it was funny because I would question, like I'd go, now is that the way, is this the right, you know, I'd send it to him and he'd go, no, I didn't, that's not ours. Is that ours? You know, and they, so there was a lot of, and I never, I, I wanted to make sure it was completely accurate or I wasn't going to do it. So there was a lot of stopping and starting with this book because I was, if I was going to be all in, I had to do this the right way. And I don't, there really wasn't, there really wasn't anything that looking back from like you brought up the Braille program to somebody getting interviewed about what happened that night. I don't think there was anything that I can really say I didn't get that I wish I would have. Well, it is definitely and will be the definitive document on this. There's there's just so much to dig into. And wait, there's more because I think all the books, mine did, comes with a CD of live tracks and rehearsals from 79. The music on there is glorious mess. It's just pure rock and roll. I thought when I was talking to the publisher about Bobby Keys, and that's another irony that maybe we can touch on about Mac and Bobby dying the same week that the book got, you know, greenlighted to get published, which I thought was really bizarre. The music was what Bobby Keys said to me. He said in his Southern accent, he goes, you got to remember, son, the Barbarians are the only band that sold out the Garden and the Forum and never had a record. And he was right. There was no Barbarians album they were touring behind. The name was given to him by Neil Young. So I thought that the music, to kind of mirror the, 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 you know, the story, made a lot of sense. And the publisher, thank God, agreed. I still have a deal with Sony. I put out vinyl of the record, too, and sold it separately. It was just, to me, I thought that was the, the nice little piece, because you can talk it and flesh it out. But if they're not able to, besides give me some neck and some stone songs, go back and hear, you, you know, you visually tell these stories. I just thought it would be really cool for people to hear. They were really like a bar band. And I think they weren't, I mean, Mick kind of makes a little tighter when he's with the, the, you know, the Stones because then, you know, he keeps it all together, which is one of his talents. But that's what I've always liked about any of those kind of bands. I've, I'm sure we've all seen shows that it's the clocks in at the exact same time as the record. The, the break is there. The, the, tambourine comes in there. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but the barbarians, you talk to people that saw shows and they were like, oh my God, it took forever to keep to come in on, you know, a sweet little rock and roller, or you never knew what you were going to get, but it was so real that once they did click, even Stanley said that if you've ever been a musician, he said, you have very few moments where you're locked in with everybody around you it takes you to another plane and you're the only one that understands it. And, you know, you may never get there again. He said, I remember specifically, he said one time at the garden, we were doing Jumpin' Jack Flash and there was a moment and only me, Zig, he, uh, we're the only ones that knew it. We were locked in on at the end of Jumpin' Jack Flash, which is why it went on for eight minutes, where he goes, it was as good as it got for me as far as playing live. I was a feeling that I can never explain correctly back to the glorious mess. I mean, it's really the way the Stones record, too, is they just play and they play and they play, and finally they go, that sounds good, let's start recording it. It just, everything grows organic, which I think is sometimes, for me anyway, the best way to see a band live. The other thing you can tell, both from the, the oral document as well as the book and the photographs, is they sure do look like they're having fun. Yeah, no, and that was the thing. Every time I would, and I wasn't out to do a people 
you know, National Enquirer story. Let's see how many lines I can show in the book. And, you know, it was funny because I think it's mentioned in the book when they were designing the stage, they wanted a little area put where they could go and have a drink or do whatever they do. So, but so the people in the back of, you know, auditorium couldn't see them. So, you know, you talk to, you know, everybody about it and they, they, you could hear them over the phone light up. Or if you'd see them, they would just think it was God. They'd all say the same thing. They go, they just... They don't do those kind of tours anymore. That was like the funnest thing I've ever done. And they all said the same thing. And it was evident when you talked to two different people on the little tent that they had built on the stage. I asked Stanley, I said, so that's kind of cool that Ronnie was very giving with, you know, you got to go out and do a nice little bass solo with Zig and you just kind of got to go off for a few minutes. And he says, oh yeah, it was, it was great. He goes, it was like so much fun to get up there with Zig and I would just, you know, bang away and just had this great little bass trip I went on and. I told that to one of the guys in the road crew, Johnny Starbuck, and Johnny says, yeah, that's one way to look at it. He goes, the other way to look at it is why Stanley's doing his little trip. You had four of the biggest partiers on the planet, Bobby, Mac, Ronnie, and Keith back, holed up, doing as much stuff as they could get in them before they went out for the encore. You know, that's probably the right way to wrap this up. Your book is incredible. Every Stones fan, every Faces fan, if you like rock and roll in its purest spirit and purest form, it's really a treasure. And uh, I congratulate you on that. And thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Very kind compliments. And it was a lot of fun to write. And that's really what I would say is if you just like kind of your straight up rock and roll or your Stones fan, I, I think you'll enjoy the book. Well, and the CD, because they don't make music like that anymore. Yeah, and accompanying music, you bet. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank our guest, Rob Chapman. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it there. We'd appreciate it, and so would Rob. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 